This podcast is brought to you by Schweitzer Church. If you want to learn more about us, please visit any of the links in the description. And now, please enjoy the message. Hey, welcome today. My name is Spencer. I'm so glad that you're here. Today is part two of our series, The Truth About Lies. And here is the premise of the series. There is a battle within each of us and all of us collectively for truth. In our day, we see this uh, battle front and center. People talk about situational ethics, moral relativism. You hear the platitudes like live your truth and own your truth. You hear the news and you listen to words like misinformation and disinformation. There is a battle for truth. I've come to believe as uh, that this battle for truth may be the thing that separates the Christian community, the church, from our culture. Because while our culture believes truth is relative and individualistic, it's up to interpretation, Christians believe that there is truth given to us, revealed to us by God, our Creator, revealed in Jesus, His Son, that this is given to us, um, that it is not up for debate, it's not up for what we think about it, it is the truth that God has revealed. And so there is a battle for truth And because there is this battle for truth that God has given us, this battle is also spiritual in nature. What we see in the Bible is that there is a deceiver who seeks to lead us away from the truth. And we see this from the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, listen to this. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. This is, of course, in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 1-2, life is perfect. Genesis 3, we have the fall where sin is introduced, and from this comes all kinds of destruction. The crafty snake, he speaks to the woman. He says this, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You'll not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So last week we read the same passage and we talked about the reality of this snake that we see here in Genesis 1, the reality of the devil or the Satan or the deceiver or the enemy or the great tempter. It goes by many, many titles um, throughout the Bible. I'm not going to rehash those things from last week. If you want to catch up, which I recommend it, you can go to our website or um, uh, listen to our podcast to do this. But for the next five weeks, what we're going to do is is break down and, and pick apart this conversation that takes place between the serpent and the woman. Because as the, as the serpent uh, speaks these lies to her, what we really find are, are five very common and predictable deceptions that plague all of us. So today, as we as we start this, um, we're gonna look at the first thing the snake says to the woman. This is the first lie that is ever spoken. We find it in Genesis 3, verse 1, when the snake says to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Did God really say? Did God really say? As far as lies go, this is as good as it gets. <laughs> the best lies 
are the subtle lies. It's just so clever um, because it's not outright wrong. I mean, God did say to avoid um, a certain tree, not all of the trees, which was what the snake accuses God of saying, but but this lie is just, it's just slightly wrong. But the thing is, uh, like a little wrong, just a little bit of deception will lead you fully away from the life that you want to lead. So I think about it like this. Um, psychologists talk about how we navigate the world and sometimes they'll use a phrase called mental maps. That we all have a mental map for how we you know, make decisions, how we think about our relationships, how we set priorities, how we deal with conflict, all those kinds of things. We have a mental map for how to navigate that. And I really like that phrase. I think it's really helpful to think about how we go through life with, with mental maps. And, and I think it's really helpful if you think about a mental map in a really, really practical term, you can see how if you're just a little bit wrong, um, you will fully, fully be led away from the life you want to live. So think about a mental map in a really, really practical, practical way. So I, I have maps in my head for how I, you know, get from point A to point B for all kinds of things. I, I have a map for how I get from my house to the church, for instance. And I know that I leave my driveway, I turn right, I, 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 I turn right on and then left on and then right on and then left on and right on and then left on sunshine and then right into the parking lot. I know I, this is the map that I take to get from my house to the church and I know it well. I don't have to look at a map to get there. I just, I just know that. But what happens if my mental map for how to navigate from like my house to the church is wrong? Well, then I don't end up at the place where I want to go. And the thing is, it doesn't have to be fully wrong to lead me fully away from the place that I wanted to go. So in the directions I gave you from my house to the church, um, that was eight turns. If just one of those turns is off, just one out of eight, that's 12%. I could be 88% right, round that up, it's 90% right. I could be 90% right, but if I'm just 12% off, just a little bit off, one turn off, I take a left instead of a right, well, I'm 100% not going to be the place where I want to be. And this is how mental maps work. So if my mental map doesn't conform to reality, then I might just be a little bit off, but I'm going to be fully missing the life that I want to live. Now that's just to apply it towards, you know, how to navigate a road, but think about how we might apply that to life. Like, what does it say when our mental map might be just a little bit off when it comes to relationships? Or maybe our mental map is just a little bit off when it comes to work or when it comes to how we think about our, our bodies, our sexuality, our, our dating, when it comes to how we think about our money, there's all kinds of ways when we start to apply how we navigate life. And it may just be that it's, that our, our, our maps mostly, may be mostly right, but if they're just a little bit wrong, we will be led fully away from the life that God wants us to live and, and the life that we want to lead. And this is, this is the, this is the lie here. Did God really say? It's so clever, it's so subtle, and the subtle lies, those are the most dangerous because it's just a little bit off, but fully, fully destructive. Now, buried in this subtle and, and, and clever lie is an accusation against God and against truth. And it's an accusation that's meant to sow uh, seeds of, of doubt. Did God really say? Does God really know best? Is God really the one to tell me how to live my life? Does God really have authority over my life? Does God really say, it's just a subtle thing that sows those seeds because it's very possible to have a mental map that does not include God's authority over my life. 
or to have a mental map that doesn't include all of God's authority over my life. So maybe parts of my life, like I took one left turn, I'm supposed to take a right turn, just one little thing, right? I withhold this and I don't let God's authority speak in that part of my life. And no matter how I go, if my map is fully wrong or just somewhat wrong, I'm rejecting God's authority over my life is a recipe for disaster. And so as you look at, the, uh, um, because it's so uh, dangerous, the writers of the Bible take God's authority and this issue of God's authority very, very uh, seriously. So let me show you this, and let's go to Romans chapter 1. This is one of the heaviest writings in the New Testament, and it's heavy because it's all about this issue of God's authority and the authority that God has over life. And you can just, as we read through this, you'll see just how seriously the writers of the Bible take this. So Romans chapter 1, I'm going to start reading in verse 18. This is written by Paul. And here's what he writes. He says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So, welcome to church. Let's talk about the wrath of God. That's a fun one. But notice the wrath of God, is, as Paul's writing this, the judgment of God, is being currently revealed. Sometimes we think about the judgment of God as what happens in hell later in the Bible or when we die, but this is like a current reality. It's a, it's a present tense kind of thing. And it's a coming against, the wrath of God is coming against the godlessness and wickedness. In other words, against destructive living. Now, what is the origin of our destructive living? According to Romans 8 verse 18 verse, uh, chapter 1 verse 18, it is this, um, this way that we suppress the truth. So remember the premise of the series, there's a battle for truth that is within each of us. And from the very beginning, from we see in Genesis 3, the, the, the strategy of the Satan is to suppress the truth, is to deceive us. Did God really say? It's that question there. So the wrath of God is being revealed, verse 19. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Them is not just, by the way, evil people, but like everybody, all people. It's you and me, it's everybody. So two verses in, what have we learned? That we can live by the plain truth that's been revealed to us by God, or we can suppress the truth with our lives. Verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So God has not hidden himself from us. Verse 21, for although they, again, that is all of us, knew God, or at least we know about God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look, at, uh, to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. So at the end here, Paul's talking about idol worship. And we may scoff at the idea of idol worship, like how in the world could anyone believe that that statue is divine, that it's like God? But idol worship, if you think about it, it's really just any way that we replace the creator with creation. That's the Romans 1 definition of idolatry. It's all the ways we replace the creator with creation. So what are the things in the world, creation, that we look at to do the things for us that God, the creator, is the only one who can do? So 
Maybe we look to money or sex or power or beauty or comfort or reputation to give us meaning, to give us security, to give us peace, to give us a sense of worth, or, or maybe that those things provide us our identity, which is a huge um, issue in today's world. Like, where does your identity come from? Does it come from creation or the creator? So before we move on and, and keep reading about this, though, we need to think, just observe just how absurd it is to, to replace the creator with creation. I mean, it's, a, it's an absurd, absurd position. The claim of the Bible, of course, is that the creator of all things, that he loves us, that he desires us, that he wants a relationship with us. And so he has given us um, this teaching on how to live, this, this instruction, revelation given through Jesus. And now we have in the words and the teachings of the apostles, we have the Bible, we have this, this, this teaching, this revelation to how to live. And your life is going to go better when you follow the instruction of the creator as it's been revealed to us. Because after all, he is the creator. We are living under the creator's authority. And instead of living like that though, many of us, we take that revelation of what the creator wants us to live and how he wants us to live and, and we look at it and we say to ourselves, nah, I'm good. I, I can make this up my own way. I can find my own truth. I can live how I want to live. And it's just, it's an absurd way to live. And yet this is what most people do. Like, here's an example of this. I mean, maybe one of the easiest examples of this is, is maybe our relationship with, with money, which is creation. Money is creation. And, but what happens when we start to look to money, creation, to take the place of God, the creator? Well, we start to look to money to, to provide us uh, all kinds of, of things like uh, like security and peace and and money starts to, to give us all kinds of, of hope and when we, you know when we feel sad we go you know retail therapy have you heard of that it's like how do I deal with bad feelings I go shopping like we start to look to this creation to do for us um, what it is that, that that God wants and so instead of having a right relationship with money that the Creator has revealed which is a relationship of stewardship we begin to elevate money in our lives. And what happens when we do this is we begin to serve money by trying to get more of it so we can buy more things, so we can be happier, so we can accumulate more and we can have our sense of self-worth coming off this if we have a higher net worth and those kinds of things. But, but all that ends up happening is we become enslaved to that thing that we think we're, is going to provide us um, more meaning and security and peace. It's like, it's like drinking salt water. Like the more you drink, the, the worse it gets. So it's absurd to think that I can reject God's authority and choose for myself how to live. And, and sadly, this doesn't just happen with like secular people out there. This is true for Christians all the time. We may not reject God's authority outright, but, but we begin to reject God's authority over different parts of our, of our lives. In his incredible book, uh, The Truth About Lies and Lies About Truth, David Tackle writes this. He says, one of the more pervasive religious distortions, or AKA deceptions, regards our general accommodation to the world, or to use Romans 1 language, creation. An alarming number of Christians are very prone to viewing their faith much like a cafeteria plan. They pick and choose which values they wish to adopt from scripture and which they will adopt from the dominant culture. This eclectic approach to faith is only possible because of the unexamined assumption 
that we are in charge of our doctrine, dogma, and morals rather than God. Much of its appeal lies in the ability to blend in with the surrounding culture, minimize our discomfort, and still hold the illusion of being Christian-like in one's behavior. Did God really say, do I really have to live my life in submission? Does he really have authority over him? Do I really need to submit my whole life to him? What if I have seven out of the eight turns right? Do I have to really give everything to him? But here's the thing. When we reject the authority of God, whether outright or just partially in parts of our life, do you know what God does? He says, okay. Okay. He never forces himself on anyone. He's like, all right, go for it. So let's go back to Romans 1. Here's the very next verse. After we replaced the creator with creation, we read this. Therefore, God gave them over. This is God's wrath right here. He's like, you want to live like this? Calling the shots? Living under your own authority? Serving the creation instead of the creator? Living however you want? Go for it. Go for it. So God gave them over. And the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Listen to that language. Exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relationships, relations for unnatural ones, in the same way the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men who received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to depraved mind, so they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decrees that those who do such things deserve death, not only they not only continue to do these things, but also approve of those who practice them. So we have this common and predictable deception whispering in our ear. Does, did God really say? Does God really have authority? Is God really the one that you have to conform your life to? Does God really um, the one who you have to submit to? Or can I live under my own authority how I want to live? There's two approaches to life with very different results. Because when we submit in obedience to live under God's authority, we find freedom. But when we live our lives on our own terms, which we think is freedom, we actually become enslaved to our own destruction. So John Mark Comer in his book, uh, Live No Lies, he uses the um, sexual revolution as a great example of this dynamic in action, that to live under my own authority um, actually leads to enslavement, while to live under God's authority actually leads to freedom. So think about the sexual revolution, 1960s. The, you know, the promise of the sexual revolution is liberation. It's freedom. It's um, liberation from the patriarchy, from repression, from, 
from oppressive social norms. It's, you know, it's all about um, uh, liberating yourself in order to, to, to find yourself. This is the, the promise of the, of the sexual revolution. And if you think about the sexual revolution in terms of like cascading levels of liberation, um, just think about how this has kind of developed over time. So the first big wave of the sexual revolution, of course, was to, was to separate, re- reverse the long-standing moral consensus around promiscuity. So we, we separated, we liberated sex from marriage. Okay, that reversal worked in tandem with the advent of birth control, legalization of abortion. And so then we, we liberated sex from procreation. This moved on to the legalization of the no-fault divorce, uh, which turned marriage into a contract, so sex was liberated from fidelity and intimacy. We moved on to the hookup culture. We've got Tinder and apps like that, and so sex is liberated from from romance and turned into just a way of like getting my needs met. Along the same time, the LGBTQIA plus movement revolution is taking place, and sex was liberated from the male-female binary. And then we have the, the current transgender wave happening where sex has been liberated from biology and our natural bodies. We also have the widespread proliferation of, of pornography. So sex has been liberated from personal relationships. And then around the corner is this uh, movement of uh, the polyamory movement. So Christian teaching has always maintained that the truth of God is that sex is God's good gift and that this good gift is to be practiced within the boundaries of a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. And to say that out loud sounds so backwards and outdated because American culture has clearly moved on from that position because sex has been liberated from, from that, from that claim. And so many, many would say that the position that I just articulated right there is repressive and patriarchal and it's oppressive to others. And so that now in American culture, it is believed that the happy and fulfilling life that is awaiting all of us is only possible um, when sex is part of that. It's like, it's like if, you, if you're not having sex, sex is like life isn't even worth living. And so an, an argument about Christian teaching on celibacy would just be outright rejected. So the promise of the sexual revolution has been liberation, been freedom. We've very clearly set aside the commands of God, the revelation of God in order to achieve that freedom. But there's a question that not a lot of people are asking, and I'm not quite sure, but there's a question we should ask. And the question is this, did it work? Are we more free? Are, are we happier? Are we more connected with one another? Are, are we uh, more fulfilled? Has the liberation movement led to, to better, more fulfilled life and relationships? I mean, let's think about the evidence. And you may argue with me on this evidence, but let's think about this evidence because I would say based on the evidence that the answer to that question of are we better off, are we liberated, has the promise been fulfilled is, is no. I mean, think about some of the evidence. Since the 1960s, researchers have noticed that happiness levels have been declining since the 1960s. Causation? or correlation. We could probably debate that. But it's been shown that the divorce, which was promised to liberate women from the patriarchy, has, has actually been shown to disproportionately benefit men. Or think about the evidence around cohabitation, that if you cohabitate before you're married, you're, you're less likely to marry, and you're then, if you do marry, more likely to get a divorce. Or we think about the, um, the there's research that has shown that, that promiscuity leads to decreasing levels of hormones that allow you to bond with another person. So therefore, the more sexual partners you have, the less likely you are, your body 
is to actually form intimacy and bonds with another person. There's a lot of conversation both on the right and the left about the mental and, and, and physical toll that abortion has on women's bodies and minds. We have a generation of children, some say 40%, who will live all or part of their childhood without a father in the home. There's increasingly longitudinal evidence that shows that sex reassignment surgery and hormone therapy replacement for transgender people does not actually benefit those who are struggling with gender dysphoria. Or think about the stats around sexual abuse and sexual violence, which are getting worse, not better. One in four women will suffer from sexual violence in her lifetime. And even in the most progressive and uh, most liberated college campuses, we now talk about rape culture because rape has become so prevalent. prevalent. When you play out the results, we should wonder, have we been liberated as was promised or have we been enslaved? Could it be that when you live your life outside the authority of God, your life doesn't get better, it gets worse? You don't find freedom, you find enslavement. The snake whispers to the woman, did God really say? Does God really have authority? Does God really tell me how to live? And the truth is, yes, God does have authority and he does tell us how to live. And the more you fight that, the more you will be enslaved and destroyed by whatever it is you think is going to liberate you and make you happy. The only path to freedom and the life that you were designed to live is to live under the authority of God, or as Christians have always said, to live with the confession that Jesus is Lord. It is a common and predictable to de deception to believe that I can live my life on my own terms how I want to, that I can pick and choose from the Bible as I see fit, that I can navigate my relationships as I want, that I can find purpose and meaning on my own, that I can do whatever I want with my body, my money, my life, but in reality, the only path to freedom, the only path to joy and peace and love and contentment and the, is to live a life submitted to God's authority over me. There is a spiritual battle and it is a battle that it, with a deceiver who's trying to tell us otherwise. So the thing about deception though, is that it's so easy to see in other people and so hard to see in ourselves so one of the tools I've been doing as I've been wrestling through this for the last year or so, thinking about this myself, is I've been asking myself a very, very basic question. And it's not, am I deceived, but rather, how am I deceived? I'm going to assume that this spiritual battle is taking place in my own life too. And the real way to find my deception is, is, is not to just go through maybe my mental maps, but really to look at the fruit of my life. And so when I look at my life and I see dysfunction, I see problems, conflict, struggles, fear, stress, worry, anxiety. I see boredom or lack of contentment. What I wanna start doing with those things is start asking myself, do I have that problem, that conflict, that fear, that worry, maybe because I'm deceived? And is there a reason that, that maybe I keep having that same struggle, I keep having that same issue and I, I can't seem to get over it? Is, it? is it because maybe, just maybe, I've bought into a common 
and predictable deception that I can live my life on my own terms, that I've rejected the authority of God in my life, that maybe there's a created thing that I'm looking at instead of the creator. It's this common and predictable deception. And so, so maybe have, I've listened to the voice of the deceiver, did God really say, and I've lost sight of the authority of God in my life, whether in big ways, altogether outright, or maybe just in small ways, where I've taken one wrong turn and there's a part of my life that has now lived in opposition or rebellion to him. Did God really say, is a common and predictable deception? And if you have destruction in your life, dysfunction, sin, fear, anxiety, conflict, a lack of forgiveness, lack of purpose, maybe it's because you've decided to believe a lie. Believe a lie, did God really say? Let's pray together. And so Father, today we um, begin by acknowledging you are the creator. We acknowledge your revelation. We acknowledge your truth. We acknowledge that you are the one who has created us, that you are the one who gives us purpose and meaning. And yet there's also this battle for truth. There is a deceiver who's seeking to wreck our lives. And sometimes it comes with this common and predictable deception that I don't have to live under your authority. So there becomes parts of our lives that we withhold from you. And so today, as we, as we think about our lives, as we think about maybe some of the dysfunctions, the sin, the problems, the fears, the anxieties, would you give us eyes to see the truth? That maybe some of these things are coming about because we have decided to believe a lie that we can live life on our own terms, that we don't have to conform to what it is that you have taught, that we can seek happiness and joy and other things besides you, and we can elevate these things to give us purpose and meaning. Lord, would you forgive us for how we have decided to believe a lie instead of live into the truth. The truth is that you are the source of all good things in our life. The truth is that you love us, that you want what's best for us. And the truth is that you have designed us to live in relationship with you. And so Father, would you give us your mercy and grace today as we think through these things and contemplate them and understand that maybe there are some deceptions that have crept into our own thinking. May we have your Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth. For anyone who's with us today and doesn't know the hope that comes with Christ, we just wanna offer up a simple prayer. Lord Jesus, would you forgive me my sin? and Would you lead my life? That we begin to see the truth of God, the truth of Christ in us, that we begin to live in honor and glory to you. It's in your name we pray today, amen. Thank you for listening to a Schweitzer podcast. We hope you found this message to be helpful and encouraging. If you enjoyed this experience, please remember to share us with your friends and neighbors. Thanks again for stopping by and remember, you are loved.